This is To The Right House, a new podcast series by the Global Campus of Human Rights. From scepticism to hope, from utopia to empathy, we discuss human rights, riding waves, but also signalling where the light is. This podcast was recorded in Venice, Italy, on the island of Lido, at the Global Campus headquarters. Hello out there. We've now reached the third episode in the Global Campus podcast series on engaging with human rights skepticism. Our topic today is pragmatic human rights skepticism. To explore this, I'm joined by two eminent human rights experts. Professor Paul Grady, director of the Center for Applied Human Rights at the University of York, United Kingdom. Paul has worked extensively with with Amnesty International in Africa and Asia, and is in his numerous publications consistently focused on the practical implementation of human rights and on human rights challenges in the new millennium. An additional key point of interest for Paul Grady is human rights cities. Kuhn de Feita is professor of public international law and spokesperson of the research group on law and development at the University of Antwerp, Belgium. Kuhn serves as member of the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Right to Development, a long-standing research interest of particular relevance in our present context is on the local relevance of human rights. I am George Ulrich, Academic Director of the Global Campus of Human Rights and host of the podcast series. First, a few words about today's topic. As opposed to other expressions of human rights skepticism, for example, skepticism based on the premise of cultural relativism, What we call pragmatic skepticism does not take issue with the very idea or desirability of universal human rights. Rather, it is characterized by a critical assessment of their practical application and is typically linked with the claim that human rights are excessively idealistic, not practical, not realistic. This point of view was vividly impressed on me early in my own career in the late 1990s when I was sent by the Danish Center for Human Rights to Dar es Salaam to engage with the Tanzania Law Reform Commission about bringing national legislation into conformity with international human rights standards and obligations. In informal conversations with members of the commission, I was told that we would love to share in the social and legal protections that you enjoy in the affluent, protected, homogeneous, and well-functioning Scandinavian countries but this is not realistic for the time being. Human rights as defined by the international community are a luxury that we cannot afford or cannot yet afford. We need instead to focus on national security matters, on combating crime, ensuring social stability, and on the need to develop the economy. For this, we require stronger, more effective, perhaps more draconian legal provisions. But, As society hopefully develops, we can gradually turn our attention to human rights and similar niceties. It should be noted that pragmatic skepticism of this type is prevalent in all parts of the world. For example, in relation to security concerns, which are widely invoked to override human rights considerations in the name of securitization. But the issue is somehow more charged when presented by representatives of the Global South 
as a matter of unwelcome foreign interference in domestic affairs, and possibly as a deliberate means of suppressing developing countries in their economic growth and prosperity. A related expression of human rights skepticism is based on charges of vested interests, unequal treatment, hypocrisy, and double standards in the enforcement and implementation of human rights. I suggest that we save this issue, this particular perspective, for the latter part of our debate and begin with the question of human rights as an unaffordable luxury. Does this line of argument have any merit at all and how to respond to it? Paul, I'd invite you to, share your, to begin by sharing your views on this question. Thanks, uh, George, and thank you for inviting me to take part in this podcast. I'm actually going to start from a slightly different direction, a position in the global north, talking about our work uh, on York as a human rights city. York is a medium-sized, middle-class town in the north of England. And in 2017, we became the UK's first human rights city. At the time when we declared as a human rights city, we had the support of all the main political parties in the city, uh, most civil society actors, religious groups, and so on. So we'd marshaled significant support across the city over a six-year campaign. And we'd worked within the context of a decade of austerity, uh, debates around Brexit, of course, in the UK. Most recently, we've had to work in the context of COVID-19. So a very difficult national context for talking about human rights, where the Human Rights Act, which is the European Human Rights Convention incorporated into UK law, had become very polarizing within UK political culture and, and media. But I think we've had to face uh, what this podcast talks, as, talks about as pragmatic uh, skepticism really all along in the work that we've done here in one guise or another. So for example, when we first started the work, there was a real perception we got from local government, but also from people in the city that, that human rights are not relevant. Uh, in a context like York, uh, that human rights apply only to particular categories of people, prisoners, refugees, and so on, or to faraway places, that in a, a relatively comfortable city like ours, that human rights, were, they were also seen as applying to extreme events. I suppose that's the other thing I should mention, that human rights really weren't relevant. And that in order to make the case that they were relevant, whether that be economically or in relation to security or on other grounds, we had to enter into a debate. We had to win an argument that couldn't be won purely on legal or moral grounds. The Human Rights Act applies to local governments uh, in the UK, but knowledge of the act was almost non-existent. And simply to say that this is a legal obligation took us a very, very small distance in terms of, of winning that debate. What we had to engage with is issues around implementation and evidence and a broader question of justification of human rights that went beyond a kind of proclamation of human rights as inherently and necessarily good. Let me stop there, George. I think that's a fair introduction of uh, what I wanted to talk about. Yes, 
Thank you, Paul. I, I find this very interesting. I think the, um, the challenge, or part of the challenge as I see it, is a question of reconciling um, competing societal objectives, whether it's security objectives and human rights or economic development objectives and human rights or public health objectives and human rights or whatever it might be. Uh, and I, I, if I take your point, if I understand what you're saying correctly, I think part of what you're suggesting is that that cannot be done just in general terms in theory. That's something that has to be done hands-on in practice all the time in a, in a certain sense. That it's a, it's a challenge that's never finished, never ending, but, but a very pragmatic challenge. Uh, I, that's how I, I hear you, at least, and I really think that's important also in the context of development cooperation. But Kuhn, maybe you would uh, you step in from, from your point of view. Yeah, if I may respond to, to what uh, Paul was saying, I, I think the point is well taken and, and, and a lot of the research that I've been involved in in the Global South has actually made exactly the same point that that uh, that you have to go um, on the ground <laughs> to to get a real sense of of whether human rights work, <laughs> uh, particularly for in, in my case and for for marginalized communities in in, in the South that you need to learn about their experience in trying to mobilize the theoretical empowerment that, uh, that human rights promises, to try and understand uh, all the impediments that are there, the, 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 the factors that may be, may be beneficial. And so that clearly you, have, you need to go beyond the law. I mean, I'm a lawyer by, by, by profession, but, uh, but in, in order to understand whether the law can work or whether the law can be a solution, uh, you really have to go down and, 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 and get the experiences of the, of the communities that are trying to invoke, uh, invoke human rights. So, so although the context is very different, I think the, the two experiences would reinforce um, each other. Uh, to go back to your original question, and, and um, of course the, the, um, the Sort of the re the reality check eh, of of, uh, of human rights. Um, I mean, there there has been quite some research, uh, uh, for instance, by Olivier de Schutter, who's now the special rapporteur in the UN on, on extreme poverty, to show that you know, in particularly in least developed countries, uh, if you start from what would be uh, a reasonable uh, taxation level. On the society, which would result in, in, in the budget that the government would have, that that budget would probably not be sufficient in some of the least developed countries to even comply with uh, the core obligations of economic, social, and cultural rights under the, under the covenant on, uh, on EEC rights, uh, or what you would need to, uh, to really ensure civil and political rights. Uh, which is why he's made the, the argument that uh, a global fund for social protection, for instance, should be, should be established to assist countries that can reasonably, in a scientific way, exceptional, acceptable way, demonstrate that they cannot domestically find resources that are necessary to even protect minimum level on the assumption that the political will even if on the assumption that the political will of a government would exist, which might, of course, also be very problematic. And, and we know that there's 
issues of corruption in many of these countries as well. But, but even in an ideal scenario where, where you would have a, a goodwill government that takes a really positive view and takes its commitment seriously and human rights, that it may be, a, may be a problem. And so I think, you know, the Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights starts with all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. But sometimes I think it ends immediately after your birth, right? Because that's when the equality ends. Because you're born into a situation, in, in, in vastly different situations, where, where uh, and it's not only about uh, maternal mortality rates, but it's also the conditions of the hospitals. And, and, and not all of that, I think, is, is a consequence of, uh, of lack of political will. It's also a consequence of real global inequality and, and inequality within, within countries. Mm -hmm. So I think there is some merit to the argument. I am, um, I mean, certainly the work I've done on rights-based development completely aligns with what Kern is saying there. And I think really part of what we're suggesting is, is, is a different way of working with, with human rights. I think, I mean, the classic more legal way of rights is a quite top-down approach, um, which you could perhaps characterize as localization of taking international or domestic law and looking to apply it in local contexts. And we've, we've distinguished localization from localism in our work, which is we've instead tried to start from the priorities of local people and then taken those two rights to see the extent to which rights and law can, can advance those rights. So for example, we early on in our work here did a survey in the city to identify priority rights of residents in the city, which were overwhelmingly socioeconomic rights, housing, health and social care, education, decent standard of living and non-discrimination and inequality. And um, we then identified indicators linked to each of those rights and have on an annual basis reported against those rights within the city. But the, the basic ethos of that was very much that we start from what matters to people in their everyday lives in the city. And we take we bring that to human rights to see what human rights can contribute. But our approach hasn't been let's teach everyone about the Human Rights Act. Um, and that for me is is a fundamental difference, perhaps from an orthodox or mainstream human rights approach. Um, you know, we've used the panel principles that are uh, originally from within sort of rights-based development work as, as a, again, a key instrument of operationalizing rights beyond legal articles, which are often quite hard to, to implement or to, to kind of see how you would implement um, in their original phrasing. Um, yeah, so I think, and, and I think that approach, in a sense, I brought to York from the work that I've done on rights-based development, that approach which was a much more bottom-up um, process-based approach to human rights, if you like. Um, I, I, I brought to York from work that I'd done internationally, and I think it's an approach that is relevant you know, across different contexts, actually. Th thanks to both of you. I find this very interesting and also interesting to hear how the experiences in York and, and, uh, and your experiences in uh, working in the Global South, Kuhn, uh, align so closely, which I think is a very, in and of itself, a very important point. I see in both cases 
uh, an indication of something that I, in a different context, have called a test of pertinence, that the human rights framework, and especially uh, rights-based programming, um, has to prove itself in the concrete and actual uh, situations. Um, I, I think it's very interesting, Kuhn, also that you're saying that um, in, in many parts of the world, in the framework of global inequality, there simply has to be an international commitment that supplements the commitment that's taken at, at national level. And I think, I think this is a very important and, and, uh, and um, meaningful point. Um, it, it doesn't completely address the, the counter-narrative, let's say, where you might have people who say we can, we can do better with a non-human rights-based approach to development, that we can actually be more effective in our development by relaxing our, the, the constraints that are imposed us, on us by a human rights framework, you know, that we can deliver better uh, the local expectations or meet local expectations more effectively if we, um, if we set aside at least some of our, of, of our human rights commitments. What do you, what do you, how do you respond to that kind of argument? You could say on the geopolitical arena that uh, to some degree China is advocating a non-human rights-based uh, development uh, paradigm and, um, and it, it has to be taken seriously. Yeah, the, I think China now calls it the, the development approach to human rights as a, as a counter narrative to the human rights approach to development, they've sort of reversed the, the formula and, and they're saying that their Silk Road project is exactly that, right? No conditionalities uh, in, in terms of human rights, for instance, but just funding for infrastructure. And, and, and that is for them an element of progress towards the realization of human rights at the, somewhere in the end, at the end of the road, perhaps. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not very sympathetic to the argument. Um, um, for, for different reasons. I mean, it, it sort of goes back to the old uh, division between development and human rights, right? You say that they are separate things and, and I don't believe that. And I think in the UN, at least, um, we've sort of moved beyond that and to say that human rights are an integral part of, of development. And so therefore there cannot be any tension I mean, between the two, because if, if your definition or your concept of development includes human rights, there cannot be development at the expense of, of human rights. And conceptually, I, th I still think that is, uh, that is the correct way to go about it. And to go back to our, uh, our, our discussion of, on your previous question, of course, if you want to start from below, then it's really important that the voice of the people be at the, at, at the bottom of the society and the marginalized groups or wherever they are, can be heard and that there's active free and meaningful participation in the development of policies by, by, by states, right? And so therefore there is a need uh, to, to uh, protect also civil and political rights in the context of the, of the development process very much because I do not believe in, in the concept of a, of a benevolent government that is far removed from the people that will then do what the people want. And, and, and I think there is an entitlement to active, free, and meaningful participation in decision-making by individual people and also by, by communities. And that is something that human rights very much try to, try to respect, uh, try to protect, I'm sorry. Paul? Yes, I, I was recalling, I mean, when I first started teaching human rights in the 1990s, the Asian values debate was very much the big discussion in terms of cultural relativism. And, and so, 
Um, I mean, these these arguments are not new, are they? They've been around for a very long time in one guise or another that, I mean, essentially development comes first and then rights can come later. And um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that the evidence base for that is particularly strong. But also, as you say, I think if you believe in a, a particular approach to accountability, uh, to development rather, which includes participation, but also things like accountability, it's it's impossible to envisage those without civil and political rights as well, isn't it? Um, they require civil and political rights alongside uh, economic and social rights going hand in going hand in hand. Um, and I, I think the challenge I'm just trying to relate it to 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 York is is always that human rights is not the only game in town. In terms of how decisions are made. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of operational human rights, uh, operational decision-making frameworks and so on, there are always, it's a crowded field. And I mean, that's part of why the case needs to be made. Um, and, um, you know, in, the, in, in York at the moment, York is, you know, it's a free trade city, there's SDGs, there's stuff around the environment, there's economic policy frameworks, there's all kinds of things. And so you know, part of what policymakers are, are wanting to know is where does human rights fit, you know, and how does it add value? I think those are the two questions. How does it fit within the existing decision-making frameworks that we've got? Um, and what's the value added? What's, what's it gonna do for us that's, that's not already done by existing frameworks? Yes, Paul, I, would, I, I take your point absolutely. I would, I'm just curious, what do you, how do you, uh, do you have examples of when you feel the, the human rights framework has little to add, so to say, that, that, the, uh, that the synergies between, uh, between human rights and the realization of other policy objectives are more questionable, you know, where you may be inclined to... Um, to, to focus predominantly, and that could be on public health, it could be on, I mean, in, in years past, I was also quite interested in the whole issue of population control, for example, and there would be people in that field who would question whether a human rights-based approach to population control was really effective. Now you could say maybe the same about certain environmental policies. You know, are there, are there times when the frictions are, are sort of so significant that uh, they require some form of recalibration of uh, approach? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I think we've, we've tended to try and focus on areas where we think it can add value. Um, and so it's, and, and there's lots of areas we haven't looked at. So, I mean, we haven't really done a lot of work on public health yet, for example. We haven't done a lot of work on the environment. And I think the environment is an area where you know, the arguments around human rights and its value are perhaps at an earlier stage than in some of these other areas. And it would be more, more challenging, I think, to make, make the case. And, and possibly because of that, we've tended to focus on, on other things. But we haven't had a concrete piece of work we've done where we've done it. And I thought, well, actually, <laughs> there's not a lot that human rights can add here. Uh, but I think that's partly because we've you know, we have identified areas where we think it can make a contribution and that, that hunch or that assumption has borne fruit. We've lost arguments. I mean, I can certainly talk about areas where, I mean, we've had a very recent one where rights has come right into collision with, um, with security concerns and we lost the argument. Yeah, could you give us some, some details on that? Uh... 
Yeah, yes, I can. I mean, it's it's an unusual one in in some respects, but um, it's actually about what's called in the UK blue badge access or disability access to the city. Um, and so during lockdown, the what are called foot streets, so the pedestrianised areas in the city were expanded initially on public health grounds uh, to ensure social distancing and so on. And then as things opened up a little bit, the rationale became a little bit murkier, a little bit more difficult to really pin down. Some were arguing that the extension should be made permanent on the basis of uh, economic grounds, pavement cafes, kind of um, others were arguing on environmental grounds. But in the end, the argument that came to the fore and that was used to push it through was security. And so York has enacted a policy that knowingly and actively excludes people who need vehicle access to the centre of the city from gaining access to the, to the centre, despite there being a significant campaign. Um, and in the end, the, the, the chief grounds for that was uh, York is a tourist centre. Lots of people come here. There's lots of students and young people as well from around the world, as well as residents, of course. And the argument that York was a significant security threat won the day in the council over a kind of inclusive city centre that would allow access to all residents, including some of the most marginalised. So, and we fought that all the way, as did the disability groups. But to date, I mean, the, the decision was taken, the campaign goes on, but as it stands, a category of people who need vehicles to access the city centre shops and facilities there will not be able to access the city centre. But on the question of, of effectiveness of human rights, I mean, I think one of the, the, the hardest debates that I've come across is that how do you determine, in fact, whether they, whether they work or not, right? And, and, and so, um, and, and certainly in the, in, in the development cooperation world, you, you're often, you're often uh, faced with people that, that want a quantitative approach, right? And, and that, that say, well, prove us, Prove us that a rights-based approach to development works better than a, 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 a policy that would not be based on, on human rights. And that, that brings in the whole debate about indicators and, and all the work that has been done in that area to try and in a way adopt that type of methodology to, to also show that human rights can work, right? Um, and, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in, 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 in that area. I mean, what we've done, tried to do in our research is, is again, because we wanted to come from, from below in a sense, is, is to ask the, the, the communities that, that, that were invoking human rights, whether they thought it had worked. So not taking the sort of more economic approach of, of showing results that can be quantified, but, but asking them uh, after, after uh, having attempted or, or having invoked human rights and, and after you know, the results for them became were available to ask basically whether they were satisfied and whether they would do it again, or whether they were disappointed with the human rights appeal and, and would not use the instrument in the future anymore, right? But in, in the world of development cooperation, that is not an, an approach that is generally accepted because they are, they, they, you know, they're, they're very much result-oriented. Also, often because development, uh, development administrations are under pressure from their own societies to, to prove that they're effective because they're, way, they're working with taxpayer money, 
So you have to you have to prove that the money that you spend is better spent when you take a human rights approach or not. And that's in very it's not always easy to to make that uh, to make that crystal clear. Interesting. Does it help you in redesigning projects? I mean, can you can you go from a sense of limited success or even failures to uh, to identifying how projects could be redesigned to become more relevant in the local context? Well, I I can't tell from experience, right? So um, I think um, I mean. For me, the first step is at least to ask the question and, and to check what the perceptions were uh, within these communities. And I think that will help or should help in the second stage or the third stage of a project. I mean, I, I mean definitely, I, I think that's the case. But I, I can't give you from my own experience, but they may exist, I don't know. Sort of a wonderful example that proves it. Maybe Paul from from, your experience in New York, no? I think, yes, perhaps I, I can. I I mean, I think for me, the, the question is also, this very much builds on what Kern's been saying, is effectiveness or who is it who is it working for, essentially? Um, you know, I think a, a dominant characteristic of the, the global economic model that prevails in most, if not all countries, is yes, there are, there are beneficiaries of that model, but there's also uh, rising inequality um, and in some cases increased poverty. And I think what human rights does through a focus on non-discrimination, for example, is it can shine a lens on that. Um, sometimes in ways that in a way should be obvious, but aren't. So we did some work here with a, a, a group of young people who in the UK are called NEETs, so those who are not in employment, education or training. So young people who have fallen outside really of the prevailing systems. And York had a higher number um, than the national average and higher than compared to cities. And so we did some research on uh, that group in the city. Perhaps unsurprising, there was a lot of activity going on trying to support this group, but no one had talked to them no one in their activities was had actively, I mean, it comes back to the basic point around participation, had engaged with them about their priorities and issues and, and how they perceived the problem. And from our perspective, that may seem the most blindingly obvious thing to have done, but it wasn't happening in the city. And so in a city that was relatively prosperous, relatively wealthy city, um, but one that's highly unequal, that's an example of a group that was being left behind, that was marginalized economically and in terms of a whole range of other opportunities. The human rights lens enabled us to identify that group and then do a piece of work with that group to engage them in finding solutions to the challenges that they were facing. So, you know, that's a very concrete example in, in York of where using the panel principles, rights-based approaches made a difference. And it isn't, in that example, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's not something we think, oh, that's really, but it, it wasn't happening. You know, it, it wasn't happening in the prevailing approaches to that issue in, in the city. And, um, and then a whole raft of things happened on the basis of the report we wrote. There was increased budget allocation. There was better ongoing engagement with that group and so on. So there were 
structural and other changes that happened to which have meant that the number of NEETs, those not in education, employment and training, has remained low, lower than national average now. I thought I would take what you just said, Paul and, and Kuhn, as a segue to the final question I also anticipated, which is the perception, which is a fairly uh, widespread perception in my experience, that the cards are, the deck is stacked somehow, that the human rights agenda benefits some more than others and is sometimes operationalized in uh, the service of powerful interests and uh, that that in turn gives rise to a certain level of, of double standards in uh, international human rights politics and diplomacy and so on. Is this something you're bothered about? Is this something we should be bothered about? Yes, I think we should be. Because uh, I think it manifests that kind of, I suppose it feeds into a, a broader critique of human rights as being somewhat elitist, remote from people's everyday concerns and so on. And and I think, you know, there are examples of that. Um, one is, you know, I think the, the, the difference in approach that we've talked about in the context of this podcast that the top-down, quite legalistic approach to human rights that assumes that if you teach people their rights, they'll act accordingly, is, is not one that, in my experience, both internationally and here, that, that, that works outside of the human rights bubble terribly effectively. It's one that I think when you're talking with highly educated or like-minded people is can seem very persuasive, but... I found in, in York, in the early public meetings we did here, that I needed to talk about human rights in a very different way. Um, another example would be the, the framing of human rights, the funding of human rights in the UK, and I think in many countries, is very, very dominated by people and thinking in the capital cities. Um, we're constantly being told about NGOs in in London who are being funded to do local work around the country when they have no connections or branches in those areas. Um, and that, you know, I guess it feeds into, I guess, the critique around human rights of it being overly professionalized, too elite, too remote, too distant from, from people. And I think there are real issues to address there. Um, across a whole range of issues of which I've only touched on on some you know I mean the key point for me is that human rights doesn't have to be and shouldn't be like that but the sad reality is that it quite often is again following up on, on, on Paul's point I, I think it it is a challenge to listen well to people that are poor and uneducated mm. and and also to to be to be open to opening up the professional language of human rights to what they are seeing. And I think it's far from easy to do that. And, mm -hmm. and maybe also in, in training people in human rights, we, we, we pay too little attention to those kinds of, of skills because, you know, often, often people that, that also students that want to go and work in, in human rights think about, you know, Geneva system or want to go and work for the European Union, become civil servants, all of which is really valuable. But for the kind of work that, that Paul and, and me are talking about, you also need another set of skills. And, and, yeah, and, 
And also, I think flexibility in, in, in the language that you use and, and not sticking always to the technical legal terms that we, that we as experts or as professionals feel comfortable with. And, and, and so it's, it's and whether you work on poverty in New York or we work on poverty in Bangladesh, I mean, it's, that, that problem remains the same. And it's, it's very to, to, um, to not teach uh, people that are uneducated. Right? And, and to, to get away from, from, I have the knowledge and they, they need to be told how they can use human rights, for instance, uh, which is sort of almost intu intuitively what you start doing. And, and it's, it takes uh, a lot of effort to resist that uh, tendency when you, when, you, when you want to work with people that are perhaps the most in need of, of human rights protection. Different point, and back to your to your question. Um, uh, of course, the, in 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 the work that I do, now do on the right to development in, in the UN, the argument of the selective use of human rights comes comes up all the time. Uh, and and I mean, I I, I can't. I'm, I'm not a voice from the global south, but but for instance, the uh, the the criticism of the rights-based approach to to development as as it's used by by the EU or by the US or by, by the developed countries is very often that it is uh, perceived of as an instrument of foreign policy, right? And so that it's full of choices that governments, donor governments, yeah? uh, why not? We now, now we have to call them partners, but you know, donor governments uh, make choices that donor governments make, both in terms of the issues that they prioritize within human rights in terms of the, the, the countries they, they wish to work with or, 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 or not. Uh, the use of sanctions, also human, sanctions for, for human rights violations, which is heavily criticized by you know, the overwhelming majority of developing countries in, uh, in, in the UN and so on. Um, and, and so, um, the, and, and again, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that, for instance, in the rights-based approach to, to development aid, it is, I mean, one of the, the, the reasons why there is resistance against the, the right to development is because that speaks about a duty of cooperation in order to address inequality, while the rights-based approach to, to development aid is really sort of a best practice within development aid, but development aid remains uh, uh, a sovereign decision by, uh, by the, the, the country that is providing the, providing the aid. I just um, did a consultancy for the, the Belgian Development Cooperation on um, uh, the integration of human rights into their new uh, development cooperation policy with Palestine. They're starting a new five years cooperation program. And, and it's clear that there's and of course, this is a very politicized issue, eh? the, the whole issue of the, the occupied territories and the role of Israel and Hamas and, you know, and, and the Palestinian Authority, which is not, doesn't necessarily have a wonderful human rights record either. But, you can, but from doing that exercise, you can see that the, and I was working with the, the technical branch of the development cooperation in Belgium, not the, not the political side, but the, the people that need to pro prepare technically the, the portfolio that they're going, going to propose to the Minister of Development Cooperation. And you feel the political pressure all the time, right? 
on, on the choices that are made. That doesn't mean that the, the human rights interventions that in the end get decided are wrong or could not be useful, but they're also selected on the basis of uh, yeah, the political pressure that the Belgian government feels from the international community, from the EU, uh, the, 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 the different political parties in Belgium that, play, that have different positions on how to deal with the relationship between Israel and Palestine. And all of that gets translated into the, the, the human rights interventions that, are, that, that, that will be uh, made in Palestine through Belgian ODA in the next five years. That's a factual assessment, right? And I think that happens very often, you know, and maybe this is a, uh, Palestine is of course a very sensitive issue in terms of the politics, but even in less sensitive, less sensitive relationships, I think uh, some of that happens and developing countries know this, know that, and they're very much aware of that. And, and this is also that creates a degree of resentment against this rights-based approach to development and then obviously always the colonial history comes up as well, right? They, they, they've seen all of this before, is often the argument. You know, we, we've seen this doing you uh, in, the, in the previous generations as well. And that then becomes a really emotional debate. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but, it, but we have to acknowledge that that, that that problem is there and, and try to tackle it as best as we can. Yeah. Thank you, Kuhn. Paul, I don't know. Do you have any just final thoughts you'd like to share as we um, uh, be before we wrap up? I think just on that the issue of inconsistency. I mean, we've not talked a lot explicitly about sort of politics and power, and you know, inevitably, human rights becomes refracted through those lenses. Um, and it's naive to think it, it wouldn't. And even within the city context, we've we've tried to work across all the political parties, but you know, for a variety of reasons, not explicitly political, but because of some of the issues we've worked on, I think there is a perception now that we're more aligned to one political party than than to others. And that's that can be of it's and often I think where that happens, human rights is, it will be more often aligned to oppositional politics. Um, but I, it's hard for me to see how that's uh, avoidable sometimes, frankly, but it does, it does lead to the perception and sometimes the reality of, of inconsistency of not seeming to be um, the same thing to all people and um, privileging certain certain groups over over others and yeah i mean there's a range of ways that can happen but politics and power is one key or two key yeah. vectors aren't they thank you that's a that's a very welcome also concluding note i think um, paul because our next um session in the podcast series will be exactly about the relationship between politics, power, and, and human rights, and the question also of politicizing or re-politicizing the, the human rights mm -hmm. agenda, you know. So I think that's that's a very fine place to end. I just say that uh, what I took away from this, in part, from this, what I feel is a very, very 
interesting and rich discussion, I must say, um, is that the, the, the package of issues that we've somehow bundled together under the label uh, pragmatic skepticism are very relevant and, and present in, in human rights work in, in, at all levels uh, in, in all parts of the world. And not surprisingly, pragmatic um, doubts or pragmatic questions require pragmatic solutions. And I think a lot of what you talked about was how these are challenges that need to be dealt with in a nitty-gritty way um, on the ground, bottom-up, uh, and in, in interactive uh, engagements. I think another point that, that came through the entire discussion was the need in this regard for an ethos of uh, humility to a certain extent, of not thinking mm -hmm. that one has all the answers, but being willing to engage with an open mind, openness as such, uh, being willing to listen, uh, able to listen, being willing to learn, and uh, also being reflexive, being aware of the, the way in which policies and decisions affect people and, uh, and the uh, interest in the power relations that are... Uh, that uh, infuse this, you know, and I feel these are uh, these sort of uh, some of the themes that that came through the entire discussion, and I really feel there's a lot to uh, to um, think about and to digest from this. So I really thank both of you for uh, for giving us your time and your your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thanks, Kuhn. It Was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.